Jesus is, and we're just kind of filling in the blank as we go along. Uh, we looked at Jesus being enough the first week, that Jesus is superior than the angels, uh, that what he has done uh, to bring a message that is greater than the message of the angels, uh, this message was a message of hope and the availability of God's kingdom. Last week I shared that Jesus was just, that God is not unjust, but that he is just, that he remembers you, he remembers the love that you have shared with Christ's uh, people and with your community, that God remembers you. This morning we're going to study uh, the book of Hebrews again and stay in that. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7. What I'm going to do this morning though, uh, we're going to cover Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Psalm 110, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 Corinthians 13. Buckle up. All right, here we go. Uh, so uh, when, I think about, when I think about hope, what are the ingredients or what are the elements that you need to have hope? And as much as we may not like it, in order to have hope, you must have uncertainty, but you also have to couple it with certainty. You have to have despair, but in order to have hope, you have to have something that gives you something to look to in the midst of that despair. You have to have difficulty, you have to have struggle, but to have hope in the midst of that, you have to have something greater or better. You know what I mean? So you have to have this sort of balance. When you have hope, it means you're going through something difficult. And the Bible is a story of a people who are constantly in the midst of despair but looking forward to something better. People who are going through uncertainty but they trust and know in a, the certain, certainty of God. The life of Israel is a life of uncertainty. It's, it's a life of this sort of struggling relationship with God and wondering how is God going to get us out of the mess that we found ourselves in. The story of Israel starts way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 12, we get the promise given to Abram, and Abram leaves the land of Ur, and he goes and embarks on this gift, this blessing that God gives him. He says, you'll be a blessing to all nations, to all people. I will give you a nation. You will be great and mighty. I'm going to give you this land. And this is the beginning of God's sort of rescue mission for humankind. A couple of chapters in, we get into a little bit of a mix. So God, uh, God sends Abraham, and he's on his way to the land of Canaan, and he brings his nephew Lot around, right? And Lot, it doesn't take long, and Lot gets, him, gets himself captured. And Abraham's like, oh boy, I brought him along. I'm responsible for my nephew. I bring my nephews on adventures, and they're constantly getting in trouble. And it's like, come on, don't tell your mom what I did right, and uh, get him out of trouble. And so Abraham, he, he goes on a rescue mission. He takes a small army with him, and he rescues Lot. And this is Genesis chapter 14. And after he rescues him, there's a surprise character that shows up. And we don't really know anything about him. His name is Melchizedek. And if you break his name down, his name means the king of righteousness. Zedek is the Hebrew word for righteousness. And so he is the king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem. And what does this king do to Abram? Abram rescues Lot, and he plunders the, the guys, and, and he, gives a, uh, he gives a tenth of what he has received to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. 
It says he brings bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham. Now, what follows then in Genesis 15 is this story of Abram and God. Abram, he's been given this blessing and encouragement back in Genesis 12. Well, in Genesis 15, he's wondering, uh, God, if I were to die right now, everything that I have, it would all go to Eleazar. It wouldn't go to my son. It wouldn't go to one of my children. It would go to another relative. It would go to someone that doesn't really have a place in this. God, what are you doing? Have you ever had one of those moments where it's kind of like, God, what are you doing moments? Well, Abram's in the thick of it. He's just, uh, he's just rescued his nephew Lot, and he's experienced the strange blessing with, uh, with Melchizedek that he blesses him and says that God will be with him and care for him, give him what he needs, and he's like, okay, I get that. I understand the blessing, but it's maybe time for a little proof. There's maybe time for a little evidence that this is going to come to fruition. And God says, I am going to give you a son. You're going to be a great nation. Oh, by the way, the nation, you're going to be captured by a mightier nation. And he's talking, God tells him about Egypt. And he says, you're going to be captive for 400 years. He tells him all about it. But he says, I will give you children. I will make you into a great nation. There will be a land. And then Abram says, okay, I get the blessing. I get that you're going to accomplish this. Now would you please show me? And some people, when we read that, when we read Abraham, we kind of read a little doubt in Abraham. And what he's actually doing is God is making an oath. God is saying, I will do this. And when you make an oath, much like, uh, like a wedding, you make a vow, you make a commitment, and then you have a ceremony that carries that through, God is making an oath. I will bless you. I will care for you. I will give you children. I will give you and grow you into a mighty nation. And God, then he makes an oath, and what Abram is asking is, God, will you make a covenant? Will you show me? And so then one of the strangest 4-H projects ever to happen goes on. He says, okay, get me a goat, get me a heifer, get me a ram, get me a dove, and get me a pigeon. Okay, 4-H project it is, blue ribbon, or what do they get if you really do well? Green ribbon, yellow ribbon, purple. Yeah, I wasn't a 4-H kid. That was evident, all right? Thank you, helpers, all right? So, and, and Abram knows exactly what to do. What Abram does then is he cuts the animals in half. I know, it's a great story. It's a 4-H project gone wrong, you know? It's, all right. And he parts the animals. And then God, he sends Abram into a deep sleep. And the, uh, the dove and the pigeon, they weren't cut in half. They do something else. But he goes into his deep sleep. And then God has this sort of conversation with him. He reaffirms what's going to happen. And then what we see in the story, in the midst of this sort of darkness of the night, there is a fire pot of filled with smoke and a flaming torch, and they pass through the torn apart animal. This is a covenant moment. This is a ceremony, and God is what God is doing, what God is showing Abram is this really strange thing, right? The smoking fire pot and flaming torch. God's presence is moving through these animals, and what God is saying, 
This oath that I've given, I'm making a covenant with you, Abram. And this covenant, what I am saying is, and what God is saying to Abram is, let me be like these animals if I don't fulfill this for you. When the, there was a covenant ceremony and people would pass through, there would be an agreement made and they would pass through the animals. And what they were saying was, is if we break this oath that we've made, may I be like the animals torn apart. Like you would think twice about like shaking your hand on a deal, right? If that was like sort of the, like the way we handled it. It's like, could you imagine like, oh, I bought my house today. Okay, let's go get the animals and chop them in half and walk through. Like, people would pay their mortgage, probably, um, I would think. That was how they made agreements. That's how they showed the seriousness of the moment. And what God is saying is, I am all in on this promise with you, Abram. And it's not Abram that goes through it. He's saying, this whole thing is riding on me. It is my presence that passed through. It's my presence that's going to guide this whole thing. It's my commitment to you and this task that is going to move this along. All right, so we have Melchizedek, king of, uh, king of righteousness, king of peace. We have this covenant that Abram's going to have, um, that Abram's going to have a people, and they are going to grow into a mighty nation, and it, it's all going to ride on God. Then we sort of flash forward a little bit, and we have uh, Psalm 110 hanging in the balance. I think the Hebrews preacher is preaching from Psalm 110. He quotes it at least twice, probably more, in, Gen or in Hebrews 6 through 7 and even into 8. And what, uh, what Psalm 110 was, was a book, uh, it was a poem about hope. It was a poem of David, but it became something used by Israel to say, we need, to, uh, we need someone to come and rescue us. And it speaks of a king who will smite their sort of enemies, and he's going to right the world. And, then we bring, and he brings up Melchizedek. He says that there is going to be a king who is also a priest, and he will reign forever. And so Melchizedek sort of comes into the picture again. And it says, the Lord uh, says to my Lord, and he sits at the right hand of God. There's some things in there that are just sort of stewing in the Hebrew preacher's heart. And he's trying to help the hearers in the book of Hero, at Hebrews hear something incredibly important. And so he starts bringing and stringing all of these things along to say to a group of people something incredibly important. When we read the New Testament, when we pick it up and we start right out of the gate, what's the sort of first thing that we learn in the book of Matthew? We get a big long list of names, right? It's like, if you're going to start a, an exciting book, you know, I can think of a, like, a more boring way than a phone book, right? I mean, it's like, what are we doing here? But it, there's a very in, incredible point to it. They want us to know that Jesus is in the lineage of royalty, that Jesus can be king. To be a royal king, you have to have uh, royal blood in you. And that is the sort of right out of the gate. We want you to know that Jesus can be king. And so over and over again, we see throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout the New Testament, they want us to know that Jesus is seated where right now? The right hand of God. We, they want us to know that Jesus is king. And I, I bet I, I don't really get a lot of pushback on that. And there wouldn't have been a lot of pushback on that either from 
the first sort of uh, people who believed. They were hoping for a king, and they believed Jesus to be that king. Where there would be a hang-up is how, how do we reconcile ourselves to this covenant? How do we navigate the waters of this new covenant and this new law? What do we do with our sin? What do we do with our relationship with God? Because the way we've always maintained our relationship with God is through a priest. It was through someone who would mediate for us, who would advocate for us, who would come before God and present an altar uh, to the altar, a sacrifice to God and offering up forgiveness of sins. And what the challenge then became was for these first Jews who became Christians, how do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with our relationship with God? How do we maintain this sort of covenant relationship with God as we once knew and understood? Jesus, his lineage is David. His lineage is not Aaron. Who were the priests? It was the lineage of Aaron. It was the Levites, the book of Leviticus, all those rules that we like to skip over because they're crazy. Well, Aaron was a Levite, and the Levites, their job were to be the priests. Jesus is not a Levite. And so there is this sort of cloud of speculation. How does Jesus get to intercede for us? And the preacher says, remember Genesis 14. Remember this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. We don't know his lineage. We don't know his genealogy. We don't know where he came from. But what we do know is that he's the king of peace and he's the king of righteousness. And he blessed Abraham as a king and a priest. And I want you to know that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, that Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek, that Jesus can be king and he can be priest. And Psalm 110 is fulfilled. That Jesus is king and priest and he's king and priest forever. And he's always there for you. He's never going to die. He's always there to intercede for you. And he can, he can go before God with empathetic heart, empathetic ear, and he knows what you've gone through and he's pleading your case. He has laid down his life for you. He knows everything going on with you, and he's interceding on your behalf. Jesus is king and priest. And so what the Hebrews preacher can say then is because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, he is is the fulfillment of the story way back in Genesis 14 and 15, he is a better hope. And he offers us a better covenant. And we can know that Jesus is a better hope than any other hope we've had before because Jesus has gone through the greatest of despair. He's gone through the greatest of darkness. He has gone through the greatest discouragement. And he has been broken and hurt and he has suffered. And he has gone through it all and he is greater than every last part of it. That there is no valley so deep, no hill so high to climb that Jesus hasn't gone through to rescue you, to save you, to understand you, to understand your hurt and your sorrow and your grief, all of the brokenness and all of the hurt. God has gone through for you. So he can say with all sincerity that in Jesus there is a better hope. And he offers us this better covenant. Because it's not just the animals that have been parted. It's now Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus' blood and it is his life that is laid down for you. 
Melchizedek, when he showed up to Abraham to bless him, what does he bring with him? Bread and wine. When Jesus starts a new covenant with his disciples in the Last Supper, what does he bring with him? Bread and wine. And he says to them, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant. My blood and my body for you. That Jesus has passed through the darkness, that Jesus has gone through death, that Jesus has gone through suffering and so much so that you can have a place in God's family. This is for you. And so he says to us in Hebrews 7, starting in verse 23, let's, uh, let's do 22. Uh, let's go to 20, sorry. Let's go to 17. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We have a better hope that we draw near to God, that whatever we're going through, there's a better hope to be drawn near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus, he lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. Let's go back to 25 for a second. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Save completely. He's always there to intercede for you. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for, or for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priest men in all their weaknesses. But the oath, when he came after the law, appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. He just said, without you maybe picking up on it, he said, the priest and king that we are waiting for in Psalm 110 is right here in Jesus. He is a priest and he is a king forever. And that means he has the authority to set the world to rights. And he has the responsibility and privilege of setting your heart right with God. He is there to intercede for you. He is there. He is holy. He is blameless. And he is forgiving you of your sins. When the New Testament thinks about Jesus, they say a great many things. And one of the most 
important things is about hope. And a familiar scripture that we spend time with when we mourn the loss of loved ones is we go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and we say to one another, we do not grieve as those who are without hope. Because there is one who is greater. He is a greater hope and he offers a greater covenant. He is a better hope and he offers a better covenant. He offers you forgiveness and life and redemption in him. So let's rewind the story. Did God make good on his promise to Abraham? Later he would make a covenant with Moses. And then he'd make a covenant with David. He'd say to David, there will always be a king on your throne. If God made good with Abraham, made good on his promise with Moses, and made good on his promise with David, will he make good on this promise? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I believe that our God and our Father in heaven is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And he has promised never to leave you and never forsake you. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, he is encouraging, uh, or 1 Corinthians 12, rather, and transitions into 13, but he encourages the people to know that we are, because of Jesus, we are a people who are filled with faith, hope, and love. And he says the greatest of these is love, but we are a people of hope. And so the question then is, how does this sort of walk through Scripture intertwine with our life today? Who should be the most hope-filled people in all of the earth? You. Me. Who should, in the midst of the uncertainty of life, know the certainty of a God who loves them and laid down their life for? You can be God's witnesses in the world and offer a testimony of faith, hope, and love in a world that is faithless and hopeless and lacking in love. You can be those people because of Christ Jesus. You can be that faith, hope, and love in the world. There is a wise word about storm clouds. That in the midst of the storm, it may be troubling and filled with despair. In the midst of the anxiety and the depression and whatever the severity of the storm, there is always a promise. There is always a glimmer of hope. And that is, is that the storm clouds will one day run out of rain. And as Christians, you can know that as we navigate life and the uncertainty and the topsy-turvy ways of the world and all of the despair and all of the darkness, that there is a greater light and there is a greater love, and that love is Jesus Christ. And one day the storm clouds will run out of rain. One day evil will run out of its strength, and Jesus will come, and he will be there with you. Friends, you can have a life with God filled with faith, hope, and love. You have a priest who is also king, who reigns and intercedes for you.
You have life. You have faith. You have hope. You have love in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We treasure you. We thank you for the gift of life. And we come to you with prayer, knowing that Jesus is interceding for us. And so when we say in the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray blessing and encouragement and strength and comfort and love. And may we know today that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of despair, that you are our hope, that you care for us deeply. That we are not without you, that you are making good on your promises, that you care deeply for us, your children. And so God, turn our hearts and our ears to you. Lord, to know that Jesus is always there for us. That Jesus always cares for us, that Jesus is always there interceding on our behalf. Lord, that we are not alone in our depression, we are not alone in our sadness, we are not alone in our grief and our sorrow and the loneliness of our hearts, God, you are there. We are not without you. And we thank you and we look forward to the day that Jesus, our priest, and Jesus, our king, will set the world to right. So help us today live as a light in the midst of darkness. Help us today to be a people filled with the greatest of hope that we can point people to you. We would turn to you, that we would know that you are there. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. Thank you, 